This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Moderate and deep sedation. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Every day, medical procedures are performed across a multitude of different settings, from the emergency room to the operating theater, from the intensive care unit to the cath lab. These are just a few of the places where procedures are performed. Procedures can be diagnostic or therapeutic and are performed by a variety of different specialists. The length and discomfort expected from a procedure varies, which means the level of sedation required varies along with it. Procedural sedation is an important component of medical care. Sedation not only decreases the pain and discomfort a patient feels while undergoing said procedure, but it also increases the likelihood that the procedure is successful and it decreases the time it takes to perform. An appropriately sedated patient increases the safety for both the patient, themselves, and the personnel treating the patient. With the vast number of procedures performed each and every day, it is not always possible or necessary to have an anesthesiologist available to oversee sedation. Proceduralists can and do provide their own sedation while performing the procedure. Today on MedNet, we will be reviewing the very important topic of moderate and deep sedation. Here at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, a variety of specialists such as gastroenterologists, cardiologists, pulmonologists, and many more may view today's program and complete the post-test to help obtain and maintain their hospital sedation privileges. Since I am no sedation expert, I have invited two guests who are. First, I have Associate Professor of Anesthesiology at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Director of the Ambulatory Perioperative Services, Dr. Jared Hurd. 
I also have Kristen Brower, Doctor of Pharmacy and Specialty Practice Pharmacist at Ohio State, specializing in perioperative services, where she works alongside both anesthesiologists and surgeons to take care of patients. Jarrett, Kristen, welcome to MedNet. Thanks. Thank you. Well, Jarrett, what are some examples of procedures that are amenable to minimal versus moderate or deep sedation? Well, as you mentioned, there are a host and variety of different procedures that require a continuum of sedation from minimal sedation all the way up to monitored anesthesia care, even general anesthesia. We won't be talking about that today. But some that you can think of that might be on the spectrum of minimal sedation would be a diagnostic heart cath, where essentially the patient is functionally awake and gets a little bit of numbing medication for the procedure. You can think about patients that may require more moderate sedation, so people that are coming for their colonoscopies and that may be with or without an anesthesiologist providing sedation. And then you can think about some of the things that we do in the OR, mm -hmm. and so those you could think about a podiatry, for example, those actually may require a patient to have a deeper level of sedation, maybe even up to monitored anesthesia care if they're presenting for an amputation. Mm. Okay. Now, Kristen, what are some of the general risks of using the medications for sedation? Um, well, the sedation meds all carry with them the risk of over-sedation, so mm -hmm. we have to be very, very careful um, when choosing the doses for each patient. Um, hypotension and bradycardia are things that are also uh, very commonly seen as risks in those uh, medications, and we really need to make sure that we are um, uh, working with our patients and working with the correct doses. Perfect. Okay. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there alongside the slides and instructions to receive your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. And if you have any questions about any of our programs, please go ahead and send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. To start us off, Dr. Hurd will be reviewing the goals of sedation, the different types of sedation, and airway management. Now let's get started. Jarrett. Thank you. So today I'm going to talk to everybody about sedation and airway management. So before we get started, I have no disclosures to report. So goals of sedation, as was mentioned earlier, the most important thing is actually patient safety. So while we do want to make sure that we are providing sedation for the patient to tolerate the procedure or surgery, we also meet, must lead with patient safety first, which requires a coordinated team. And the members of those team may be trained in BLS or ACLS, just depending on the setting and environment. And again, the requirements of the pavilion where the procedure is taking place. The next thing is to make sure that we are being safe and having appropriate monitors. So the monitors that are typically we follow and that are recommended come from the American Society of Anesthesiologists or the ASA. If it is sedation that is happening under minimal sedation without the involvement of a qualified anesthesia provider, the basic minimal monitors that are required are circulation and oxygenation. So you can think about pulse oximetry and non-invasive blood pressure or an EKG and or an EKG, whether that's three lead or five lead. If it is an ASA monitor, that would also include a method of ventilation as well as potentially temperature management. In addition to patient safety, you want to think about patient comfort. A lot of the patients are presenting for these procedures, and even those that may not be that noxious of a stimulus, the patients may have a degree of anxiety, so you want to make sure that you're addressing the patient's anxiety and pain or overall discomfort. And lastly, making sure that the sedation that we provide actually gives a good experience for the proceduralist, so you want a quiet procedural or operating field where the patient is not moving in so much discomfort. 
As I mentioned, the types of sedation is on a continuum, so it is a spectrum. And that starts as low as minimal sedation. You can think about anxiolysis. So if you give somebody a medication because they're anxious or nervous for the procedure, as I mentioned with a diagnostic heart cath. And that can go all the way up to general anesthesia. Moderate sedation, also known as conscious sedation, typically involves not only anxiolysis, but also some type of analgesic. And then there's deep sedation and general anesthesia. And we will be talking about the differences of those sedations. So minimal sedation is a drug-induced state where the patient is typically able to respond normally to verbal commands. If anybody's seen a patient after they've received midazolam, typically those patients are able to kind of talk to you and communicate, even if they have a degree of amnesia where they are not necessarily able to remember after the fact that they had a conversation with you. The airway reflexes, most importantly, and the ventilatory and cardiovascular functions are not affected when a patient is undergoing minimal sedation. Moving along that spectrum, you get to moderate sedation where there's also probably a degree of analgesia. Some people call that conscious sedation. Again, another drug-induced state. However, now we're looking at a depression of consciousness. So this is where the patient is teetering on that line of potentially not being conscious. The patient can still respond purposefully to verbal commands, whether that is alone or if there's light. And again, I need to specify this light tactile stimulation, so they do not require sternal rub. Neuro interventions are required to maintain a patent airway. Typically, the spontaneous ventilation is adequate. And again, the cardiovascular hemodynamics are maintained. Deep sedation. Now we can think about a severely depressed state of consciousness. The patient cannot be easily aroused, but they still may respond following repeated or painful stimulation. Again, so sternal rub for a patient. You can think of somebody that you've seen that's not quite obtunded, but again, deeply sedated. Their ability to independently maintain ventilatory function at this point may be impaired to the degree that they may require some type of supplemental oxygenation or assistance with ventilation. Lastly, cardiovascular function usually is still maintained when we're providing deep sedation. The last state would be general anesthesia, and that is a complete loss of consciousness. As I like to tell patients and providers, anesthesia itself, general anesthesia, is a state, and that would include unconsciousness, but also a degree of analgesia. Therefore, the patient typically is not arousable by painful stimulation. The ability to maintain ventilatory function is now impaired, so they do need assistance often with manipulation of the airway, and that may include positive pressure ventilation. And most importantly, because of the medications used to induce this state of unconsciousness, typically the cardiovascular function is impaired and needs an additional state of monitoring and assistance. Monitored anesthesia care as a word, so the acronym that you get you, uh, people within the institution and outside may hear, MAC, monitored anesthesia care. I always tell people it is not a drug, it is not propofol. It does not describe the continuum of depth of sedation. So MAC is something independent of the depth of sedation. What it really says is that a specific anesthesia service is performed by a qualified anesthesia provider for a diagnostic or therapeutic procedure. This is important because technically, I can provide somebody with monitored anesthesia care without administering an IV medication. So if the patient for some reason has a lot of serious comorbidities where the patient person doing the procedure is not comfortable enough to also monitor the patient's hemodynamics, that can be a service where an anesthesia provider can be there. Indications typically for monitored anesthesia care are deeper levels of analgesia and sedation. Again, it depends on the comfort of the proceduralist. So 
Sedation is a continuum, and it's not always easy to predict how an individual patient will respond to any type of medication nor level of sedation. So if there's an intention to produce a given level of sedation, there's always should be a plan and an understanding about what mechanisms or actions will be in place to rescue a patient when that level of sedation becomes deeper than intended. So if you're thinking about administering moderate sedation or conscious sedation, the thought should be, how can I also make sure that I can rescue a patient if they fall into deep sedation, and then if they fall from deep sedation into general anesthesia. As this is a continuum, rescuing, rescuing a patient from a deeper level of sedation than intended by a practitioner also means that there should be somebody available that is proficient in airway management and also advanced life support. The practitioner should do everything they can to return the patient to the originally intended level of sedation. So do not continue to sedate the patient if you get into trouble. And here you can just see the ASA scale and spectrum of sedation that we talked about, looking at minimal sedation, anxiolysis, all the way up to general anesthesia, and just basically understanding what cardiovascular function may be affected or may not be affected depending on the level of sedation, as well as whether or not there needs to be involvement of the airway. Another thing to understand about sedation itself, since multiple providers could be involved in providing sedation, there are different coding and billing um, things associated with sedation. So 99152 is when a physician is providing sedation as well as doing the procedure. So you can think about an endoscopist doing a colonoscopy and also providing that sedation. So in the 99152 billing uh, code, so the initial 15 minutes of sedation services, that covers, that is what's covered. And then the 99153 is each subsequent 15 minute of sedation services where you need to document the patient vitals and monitoring at least every 15 minutes and document the level of consciousness as well. Remember that the monitoring and the documentation must be done by somebody other than the person that is administering sedation. So if you're in a clinic or a procedural area and you're doing the procedure and administering the sedation, you need to have a responsible person that can also monitor and document the patient's level of consciousness. In 99156, this is a physician other than the proceduralist that is performing the sedation. So we can go back to the endoscopy suite, and if the level of sedation is greater than what the proceduralist is comfortable with, or if the patient has so many comorbidities that the proceduralist does not feel comfortable providing the sedation because of potential disruption of hemodynamic status, the billing would then take place under 99156. Again, each 15, uh, each initial I'm sorry, the initial 15 minutes of sedation services with 99157 being each subsequent 15 minutes of sedation services provided afterwards. Same thing, documentation must occur at least every 15 minutes and you must document the level of consciousness every 15 minutes. Now, this does not necessarily mean that another physician is providing that sedation. So if a proceduralist is doing this and they are uncomfortable providing the sedation services, the nurse that is then in the room or the other person that is in the room, including the other, other personnel that is not a qualified anesthesiologist providing the sedation cannot also be the person performing and monitoring documentation of vitals. So those roles must be separate. So at a minimum in this scenario, you would need at least three different people in the room responsible for the patient. One doing the procedure, one providing the sedation, and then one doing the monitoring and documentation of vitals. Just know that if a proceduralist provides sedation, the patient receives a bill from the proceduralist that includes the fee for sedation in addition to the procedure. If 
Anesthesiology is consulted for sedation services. The patient will receive a bill for the procedure as well as a separate bill from anesthesia. Obviously, the bill that they receive from the proceduralist will be lower than if the proceduralist was providing the sedation themselves. Another thing to just mention about billing and sedation if anesthesia services are required is good early on documentation about why anesthesia is necessary for a procedure that otherwise could be done without sedation. So you can look here at the CPT code 99156, document accurately why anesthesia services are needed. One of the things we're starting to see is certain payers and insurers are not necessarily reimbursing for anesthesia services if it's not documented. Now typically it's not that onerous, so failed sedation, um, substance abuse or anxiety can be easy ways to say that this is a justification for using anesthesia services in addition to the patient's comorbidities. So before we get started with sedation, you want to make sure you have a plan in place and assess the patient accurately. So you want to do a full-on review of systems. You want to look at the H&P, the history and physical, go over their medications and allergies. Remember that some of the medications that we use on this spectrum to achieve sedation could potentially precipitate allergic reactions. Look at the social history. Again, we think about people with high substance abuse disorders may end up requiring more sedation. Uh, pregnancy status as well, and understanding if they've had any previous adverse reactions to, patient, uh, to, to sedation. You also want to consider the patient's NPO status. So once a patient is receiving sedation, you have to anticipate that the patient may fall further along the spectrum of sedation to where the patient may not be able to protect their airway. So NPO status is very, very important because the patient could be at aspiration risk if they have a full stomach. <clears throat> you also want to understand their cardiopulmonary physiology, renal hepatic, endocrinology, cerebrovascular, so understand and document if the patient has any previous cognitive impairment before because it lets you know that if the patient did not have cognitive impairment before receiving sedation, <clears throat> that therefore if they have cognitive impairment afterwards, it could be related to either the sedation or the procedure. You also want to understand if the patient has had any motor or sensory deficit or head trauma because that is going to be a part of the pre and post assessment for a patient undergoing sedation. You also want to understand if the patient has any known or documented history of airway issues, whether it is obstructive sleep apnea or whether they had some previous challenges with intubation. So this is just a kind of reminder that the American Society of Anesthesiology has a physical status designation for patients based on their comorbidities. Now this can be used for everybody. It is not just for the use of anesthesiologists. And it goes from one, two, three, four, five, and six. We won't go through uh, five and six because those patients are probably beyond what we're talking about today that will require sedation. ASA 1 would be a normal healthy patient with no significant disease and ASA 2 is a patient with mild systemic disease. And that includes people that are smokers and even um, because of the physiologic changes with pregnancy we do consider pregnant parturients, uh, pregnant patients, we consider them ASA 2 as well. ASA 3 would be a patient with severe systemic disease. So your ASA 2 if you have hypertension but it's well controlled. If you're poorly controlled hypertension, poorly controlled diabetes, if you are morbidly obese with a BMI of 40, now we look at that as illnesses that have a broader and more severe effect to the patient's um, physiology. And then ASA 4 is a patient with severe systemic disease that is a constant threat to life. So now we can think about a patient that has recently had some type of cardiac event, an MI, a cerebrovascular event, or necessitated intervention from a cardiac standpoint, a patient that continues to have ischemia, some type of valve dysfunction. You can think about people with intracardiac devices as falling in ASA 4 status. An update a few years ago, patients that are undergoing 
Uh, routine dialysis that are end-stage renal disease can be classified as ASA-3s. Those that are not seeking or getting regularly scheduled dialysis would be ASA-4. A thing to just kind of understand about OSA, so patients that have a degree of OSA prior to receiving sedation, it can be anticipated that this patient may also need to have some additional support for their breathing and ventilation during the procedure. So STOPBANG is what is used nationally, what we use here, and it's an acronym just looking at the risk for a patient that maybe does not have diagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, but may, but may be at risk, um, especially if they are going to receive sedation. So STOP, so snoring, tired, observed, apnea. The P is for pressure, which is a surrogate for hypertension. Bang, the BMI greater than 35, age greater than 50 years, and neck circumference, neck circumference greater than 40 centimeters, and male gender. If you have three or more of these, you can be considered a patient that has a risk for OSA. And that does, that does not mean, or it does not preclude, excuse me, it does not preclude a patient from receiving sedation. It just means that we all need to be aware that this patient may have a degree of obstruction of their airway either during the procedure or afterwards. So when should you consult anesthesia if there, again, was failed sedation without anesthesia services, if the patient has substance abuse or use disorder, if you know that they have a high-risk airway or significant anatomical changes where you may not be able to adequately provide oxygenation and sedation, significant comorbidities, a lot of times at some of our pavilions where we're doing things on an outpatient basis that require sedation, we say, you know, if a patient is an ASA 3 or greater status, that may be a good reason to consult anesthesiology. And then severe sleep apnea with an apnea hypopnea index greater than 30. So anesthesia assessment, again, it's similar to the pre-sedation assessment. It's just a more focused cardiopulmonary exam. It also would entail a previous anesthetic history and if there were any challenges or any reactions to anesthesia. It also would include the patient's functional status as well as considerations of the positioning. Again, is this patient going to be supine if they're going to be on their side when they undergo the procedure? So here is a video of a basic airway examination. So you see um, the anesthesiologist walking in, introducing themselves to the patient, going over a history and assessment of the patient, and then as the airway takes place, looking in at the patient's mouth opening, and we'll talk about this in a bit, but this is basically a way to anticipate if the patient might have a difficult airway if there needs to be airway manipulation. So looking to see about the oral opening and the size, looking to see if there's any mandibular anatomic changes that may anticipate a difficult airway, looking to make sure that the patient has normal range of motion with head and neck flexion and extension, as well as looking at a measure of the distance between the mandible and the glottic opening. Those are all ways we can determine if a patient is at risk for a difficult airway. So some things to be aware of too, when we're providing sedation, if there needs to be assistance with the patient's breathing, we have opportunities for supplemental oxygenation. You can think about a nasal cannula. So one of the things we have now is a high flow nasal cannula, and that has been a game changer in a lot of the suites. So the high flow nasal cannula allows for humidified oxygenation at higher flows, up to 60 liters per minute. It washes out dead space and it decreases the amount of dilution for the oxygen that's delivered to a patient that you might not be able to achieve with the nasal cannula. So just a word of that. Patients may require a simple mask, a non-rebreather mask, or if you really need to support the patient, bag mask ventilation. 
Before the procedure, make sure that you get consent for both the procedure and the sedation. Typically, those come um, with the same documentation if the proceduralist is also providing the sedation. Obviously, those are separate documentations if there's another per person or provider providing the sedation. If consecutive procedures are planned, make sure that you get consent before both of those procedures before giving sedation. And then right before the procedure, a timeout must be performed where we are gonna review the patient's medical status, the patient's demographics, MRN number, their allergies, and make sure that we're all performing the right procedure. Assessments of the patient undergoing sedation, again, should be every 15 minutes. We're gonna be looking at level of consciousness as well as hemodynamic status. This takes place until the patient is awake, alert, and oriented, or back to the patient's baseline. You also wanna make sure that the patient has recovered any protective reflexes if they are on that spectrum of deep sedation to general anesthesia, as well as looking that the vital signs have returned to normal and that oxygenation is within at least at 92% or at the patient's baseline. Post-procedurally, wanna make sure that you have a company personnel trained in sedation monitoring. So it should not just be the person providing the procedure and sedation also responsible for transporting that patient. You wanna make sure that they can be received by somebody that is trained in monitoring and managing patients that have received sedation. You wanna make sure that there's available supplemental oxygen as well as monitors, again, pulse oximetry, potential measurements for ventilation, as well as emergency drugs are needed and additional monitors for cardiac and circulation. Discharge, make sure that the patient understands after receiving sedation. They cannot drive, cannot have alcohol or sedatives, cannot operate machinery, and make sure that they're provided with a phone number for questions, and they have to have a responsible adult to accompany them home. So they cannot drive themselves home. And it's a little bit of medical legal back and forth about what constitutes a, a responsible adult, but typically you can't just drop them off in a taxi and say, see you later. So make sure that the patient says that they have arrangements prior to the procedure is the best way to avoid these challenges on the back end. If a patient gets into some distress, there's always ways to do some airway support. Those include jaw thrust, nasal airways, and oral airways. If the patient slips into a deeper level of consciousness where they cannot protect their airway, consider using a bag mask ventilation. Um, it depends on the technique, or the technique is based on both the provider ability, but also the patient's habitus and their anatomy. So you may use a one versus two hand seal. Always make sure you get the patient in the proper sniffing position. And so that is with forward uh, protrusion of the mandible and also slight cervical uh, extension. Make sure that you have nasal and oral airways available. If possible, you want to decrease that amount of sedation so that the patient can at least maintain some spontaneous ventilation. So this is just another quick video of a patient right now. So you see the hands on the patient supporting them. Um, so this would be the beginning of a jaw thrust maneuver in this patient that has a nasal cannula and now the insertion of an oral airway to move out redundant tissue that's falling back into the airway, preventing the flow of oxygen. And then this is a basic one-handed bag mask technique. You can see the, the small finger at the angle of the mandible with the other rest of the hand on bone and also on the mask and providing breaths with the bag. Make sure that there is no leak on the contralateral side of the hand of the mask. So we understand that we take care of a host of patients and some may have anatomical changes or potentially difficult airways. So a quick word about the difficult airway. 
So array types and difficulties, they come in lots of different forms. Um, you may consider using a face mask that may become difficult or laryngoscopy is difficult when you need to intubate somebody. You, there may be the need to use a supraglottic airway, tracheal intubations, or some type of invasive airway if you truly cannot intubate a patient. You can also think about difficulties in a patient that has had inadequate ventilation. So if a patient has failed any of these, face mask, laryngoscopy, supraglottic airway, now we can start to consider possible difficult airway. So the ASA has a definition of difficult airway and just understand that they've kind of broadened this out into different categories. So you can have a patient that was a difficult face mask ventilation, a patient that was difficult with laryngoscopy. So this means that um, there was not success after multiple attempts at laryngoscopy, whether that is video uh, whether that is direct laryngoscopy or video assisted and that you were not able to visualize the vocal cords, a difficult supraglottic airway. So we carry the laryngeal mask airways here. So if it was impossible to provide adequate ventilation with sealing um, with a supraglottic airway so that you have inadequate uh, airway seal and therefore excessive gas or leak of the ventilation. You can have a difficult or failed tracheal intubation. So after multiple attempts, you fail a difficult or failed tracheal extubation. So you can think about patients that therefore were not able to maintain spontaneous ventilation after extubation. You can have a difficult or failed invasive airway. So now we're thinking about patients that have certain anatomic features that may prevent placement of an airway into trachea through the front of the neck. There can also just be inadequate ventilation after a potentially established airway. So now we can think about um, absent or inadequate exhaled CO2 even after manipulation of the airway. The basic causes of difficulty well, mostly um, they're anatomical in nature, so you can think about patients that have um, obesity, short neck, protruding teeth, receding mandible, or an increased alveolar mental distance. Those that get uh, acquired difficulties as opposed to just basic anatomical ones could be people that have acute neck swelling, people that have had previous trauma, people with an active infection. You think about people that have limited jaw opening, whether that's trismus or fibrous from a previous surgery, and people that have limited neck movements, so either those with osteoarthritis or C-spine issues or ankylosing, ankylosing spondylitis, those people may have limitations in their ability to move their neck, therefore making uh, the intubation potentially more difficult. So just a way to kind of predict the difficult bag mask ventilation, the acronym is BONES, and this has kind of changed over time, at least the limitations, but uh, bearded patients, obese patients, now the BMI is greater than 30, I believe it used to be 25. Patients that are edentulous, the elderly, so patients that are over 55, and somebody that has a history of snoring or sleep apnea could potentially have redundant airway tissue that make them a difficult bag and mask ventilation. When thinking about intubating a patient, if it is required, there are some ways to predict whether or not this could be potentially difficult. So when we did the airway video exam, looking into the airway was using the Malampati classification. A class one means that you can have a view of the entire posterior oropharynx and the base of the tonsillar pillars, whereas class four means you cannot see the posterior oropharynx or the uvula, only the heart palate. So here's a brief diagram of the Malampati class. So it's grade one, two, three, and four. There actually is a 2A, 2B. I didn't include it here for the purposes of this because they still kind of fall into the category. But basically, if you're able to see the glottic opening um, with grade one and grade two views with intubation, then you also know that it's unlikely this patient has a history of difficult intubation. Looking at the Malampati up top, when the, looking at the oral opening, you can see class three. That's where essentially you can see soft palate. In class four, like I said, all you can visualize is hard palate.
So predicting difficult intubation, if you remember that video, there were three finger mouth openings. So if it is less than three finger mouth openings, that could be potential difficult intubation. If there's less than three fingers of the distance from the mentum to the hyoid space, or uh, less than two fingers from the hyoid to the thyroid cartilage, that also could predict a potentially difficult intubation. So understanding how you want to manage a difficult airway, so obviously you want to have an opportunity to review the medical record and the patient's history. If they have a history of a difficult airway, plan accordingly. You want to make sure you assess, again, anatomical changes, protruding and scissors, make sure that they don't have any flaring of the nares or any problem where that says they would not be able to breathe from their nose, the malampati score, again, everything that we looked at in the video and the body habitus, those could all be potential things you want to assess before managing a difficult airway. If you think you're going to be managing a difficult airway, make sure you have proper preparation. You have your airway devices, your adjuncts, you want to pre-oxygenate pre the patient well, make sure you have the patient optimal positioning, so again, sniffing position, have your ready, readily available medications, including those that you may need to rescue a patient, but most importantly, trained personnel to help you manage a difficult airway. And this is just the last slide looking at the ASA difficult airway algorithm for adult patients, and it's changed over time. I know this is a kind of very busy slide, so do not commit it to memory, but this is out there for everybody to look at if there are any questions about it. And it just kind of goes through um, whether or not the patient was difficult to intubate, whether the patient was difficult mask, ventilation. If you look across, though, once you get into trouble, if there's anything that I can impress upon people, always ask for help. Thank you so much, Jared. That was really helpful. Um, now I'm wondering, in moderate sedation, do patients feel much pain or discomfort? So that's actually an excellent question. And interestingly enough, there is a medical definition of pain. So patients that are undergoing moderate sedation typically have a degree of anxiolysis where they may be teetering on a level of losing some of their consciousness. So it's questionable if they actually can truly experience pain because the definition of pain is there for um, it has to be an emotional event that is associated with uh, real or potential tissue damage or noxious stimulus. Mm -hmm. Typically with moderate sedation, there's also a degree of analgesia mm -hmm. being given to the patient. So they may experience stimulation, but if analgesia is provided in theory, they should not be experiencing so much pain. It may be more discomfort. Remember that they may move to stimulation. So they may not be aware of feeling pain, but they may move to the stimulation. Mm, okay, now for the second half of our program, Kristen will be reviewing sedative and reversal agents. Kristen? Thank you. As Dr. Hurd alluded to, we have several different classes of medications that can be used for procedural sedation. And the chart here shows that uh, all of these different medications can carry with them different properties that we really need to work together and in conjunction to provide um, procedural sedation to our patients to make them comfortable. The first class of medications that we'll talk about are the opioids. These are class two scheduled controlled medications per the DEA designation. And these meds work through the mu opioid receptor as antagonists. That's really the receptor that is uh, one of our main players in the propagation of pain um, from the stimuli up to the brain. The opioids carry with them side effects of respiratory uh, depression and hypotension, which you'll see is a common theme for these meds used in procedural sedation. Um, they can also carry with them uh, the risk of nausea and vomiting and decreased gastrointestinal motility. Um, meiosis is something that we can see when the patient uh, may be getting just a little bit too much of the opioid medication. Sometimes that's uh, the first, uh, the first 
uh, sign that we maybe need to dial back on that drug a little bit. And the opioids are all metabolized via the liver, and so patients with liver dysfunction uh, may be overly sensitive to the opioid classes of medications. Um, this is just a, a little graph to show us the different options that we have for opioids. Um, the, as you can see, as you uh, look down and over across the, the chart here, these meds really uh, differ pretty widely. The IV onset of action is very important when we're talking about procedural sedation. And um, really that kind of helps us to get the procedure going uh, in a quick fashion and gets the patient into that um, sedative state. Um, the medications differ in their duration of action, and that's really important um, from a redosing standpoint. And on the back end, where we're trying to get the patient to wake up and allow for them to safely return to home. Some of the medications have active metabolites, and again, that kind of uh, couples with their duration of action because those active metabolites can stick around, um, specifically in patients who may have uh, liver or renal dysfunction. Um, the medications are not all created equally. Some of them are a little more potent than others. And there are um, separate classes of the opioid medications, and this is important for us. If patients have allergy to one subclass of um, the opioids, then often we can turn to the other class of medications. Uh, fentanyl is our preferred opioid medication at Ohio State for procedural sedation. Um, it's given in dosing aliquots of 25 to 50 micrograms. Um, over two minutes and can be redosed every two to three minutes. Uh, fentanyl doesn't have a, uh, a histamine release as strong as some of our older opioid medications, which helps in uh, some patients that can experience itching from that histamine release. We do need to pay attention to patients' medication history, though, when using fentanyl. It carries with it a black box warning um, when given in conjunction with other agents that are metabolized in the liver through that CYP3A4 pathway. Um, the kind of the classic precaution that we think about with fentanyl is it can cause skeletal muscle rigidity and chest wall rigidity if it's given too quickly. Um, so I think that that's something that's very important to consider during the procedure and when giving the medication. Uh, fentanyl can also carry with it a risk of bradycardia um, that does respond to ephedrine and other anticholinergics. Mepiridine historically was our opioid of cho choice in procedural sedation, and I like to point this out that it really isn't uh, any longer used first line due to those unfavorable pharmacokinetics uh, compared to fentanyl. If you refer back to that chart, you can see that fentanyl has a faster uh, onset of action and a lesser duration of action. So really uh, you know, giving us a, a quicker onset to be able to perform the procedure and a safer transition back to home. Mepiridine um, also carries with it some undesirable side effects or, or related to the active metabolite that we talked about. And specifically, the active metabolite from mepiridine can propagate seizures um, really in our elderly patients and patients who may have trouble breaking the drug down. Um, as Dr. Hurd uh, alluded to, we always need to make sure that we have uh, safety reversal agents on board um, and near, uh, near the area of the procedural sedation. So opioids can be reversed by the drug naloxone. Um, that drug can help to reverse any respiratory depression, over-sedation, or pruritus that the patient is experiencing from the opioid. Um, but we need to pay attention to the dosing. You can see here that if a patient has a respiratory rate of less than seven and are difficult to arouse, um, 
we recommend a dose of 0.1 milligrams every two minutes until improvement. Um, but if the patient has an apneic uh, spell, uh, we do give a higher dose of 0.4 milligrams every two minutes. Um, and as uh, we kind of state here, that drug can be given um, every two minutes until the patient improves. Benzodiazepines are class four scheduled medications and these exhibit their uh, mechanism of action by binding to the GABA receptor and enhancing GABA activity, which is uh, typically one of our neurotransmitters that causes a more relaxed state in the body. Um, similar to the opioids, they also carry with them risk of hypotension and respiratory depression. Uh, midazolam is our uh, benzodiazepine of choice at Ohio State and in many institutions. Uh, dosing for this drug um, begins with doses of 0.5 up to 2 milligrams given every two minutes. Um, the drug really does take a couple of minutes to uh, settle in and cause its effect, and so we, we really need to allow for that to, um, to occur before we give any additional doses. Uh, midazolam is characterized as a short-acting benzodiazepine that lasts for about two to five hours. It is uh, metabolized through the liver and uh, has with it drug interactions uh, through that CYP3A4 pathway um, that can really prolong the, the duration of action of the midazolam, so causing the sedation to last a bit longer. Uh, prolonged half-life uh, can be seen in patients who are elderly, um, those who are, who are obese, patients with congestive heart failure, and as we said before, those with hepatic and renal impairment. Lorazepam is something else that uh, many institutions use for procedural sedation. Um, it does have a, a longer onset of action, so you have to give it a little bit uh, sooner than you would have to give uh, things like midazolam. And it is characterized as an intermediate acting uh, benzodiazepine, so it lasts longer patients can be sedated for a little bit longer with this medication. And I also mentioned diazepam. Uh, diazepam is given in doses of two milligrams IV push for procedural sedation, uh, but doses can really vary uh, on this, with this drug a little bit more with patients' characteristics, including their age and obesity. Um, it is characterized as a long-acting uh, benzodiazepine with a, a fairly similar onset of action to midazolam, but that long-acting uh, 24 to 48 hour elimination half-life uh, sometimes precludes our uh, use of that medication in procedural sedation. The drug also is uh, excreted renally and has an active metabolite. So that active metabolite in patients who have liver and renal dysfunction, uh, it can really stick around for quite a while. I'll also mention a newer benzodiazepine to market in 2020 uh, called remimazolam. Remimazolam carries with it an indication for uh, induction and maintenance of procedural sedation in patients undergoing procedures that last 30 minutes or less. Uh, remimazolam is pretty unique because it has an onset of action that is immediate and a very quick elimination half-life of 30 to 60 minutes. Um, patients uh, tend to have full alertness within about 15 minutes after the last dose. So it really does make this a, a unique medication that we can consider for procedural sedation. 
Benzodiazepines can also be reversed um, by a drug called flumazenil that works by antagonizing that GABA receptor. It has a very quick onset of action of one to two minutes um, and can last for about 45 to 60 minutes. We give that in doses of 0.2 to 0.3 milligrams um, and it can be repeated every one minute for up to a, a total of one milligram max. Uh, resedation can occur, and if it does occur, we can redose the flumazenil by giving one milligram every 20 minutes as needed. Atomidate is another class of medications that can be used. Um, in our institution, we require that the physician be at bedside for use of this uh, non-barbiturate hypnotic medication. Uh, Atomidate, similar to the uh, benzodiazepines, works by binding to that GABA receptor. Atomidate has a really quick onset of action and a very quick duration of action. And so uh, I would say that we probably most commonly use this for our uh, intubations, uh, specifically in floor patients, but it can be used for our faster um, and shorter duration of procedural sedation. Uh, Atomidate has uh, side effects of uh, respiratory depression. It tends to be pretty neutral um, from a blood pressure and heart rate standpoint. And kind of the textbook side effect um, that steers patients, steers physicians away from using this as their drug of choice um, is often the decrease in cortisol levels that can be seen in patients for about four to eight hours after the automate is being given. Uh, propofol is another medication that can be used in procedural sedation um, that acts upon that GABA receptor. Propofol is pretty unique because it is a lipid emulsion with a very quick onset of action of 30 seconds and a short half-life of about two to eight minutes. Um, that lipid emulsion, um, we really can uh, are seeing that that's very beneficial because it crosses the blood-brain barrier very quickly to give that short on and short off action. Um, propofol does have um, some pretty big risks associated with it. Um, respiratory depression can be pretty prominent um, and you must be able to manage an airway when giving that. It also is a cardiovascular depressant. Um, hypotension, hypotension and bradycardia can be very profound. Um, patients can really transition to an unpredictable, um, in an unpredictable fashion to deeper levels of sedation with this medication. Um, and therefore at our institution, we require that physicians uh, must be credentialed in deep sedation to be able to administer this. And it is not allowed to be administered by nursing staff. Uh, propofol can be given in doses of um, 0.5 to one milligram per kilogram uh, over about two to three minutes, and then redosed every three to five minutes as needed. Ketamine is another medication that can be used for procedural sedation. This one works a little bit differently than the others that we've talked about um, by inhibiting the um, N-methyldiaspartate or the NMDA receptors. This drug carries with it uh, properties of anesthetic and analgesic. It uh, does have a very quick onset of action and a fast duration, so that makes it uh, good for our shorter cases. And it can be given in doses of 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram over about 60 seconds. Um, the side effects of ketamine include things like hallucinations and emergence reactions. So those are a little different than the other meds that we've talked about so far. And we'll talk about those a little more in depth on the next slide. Um, hypertension can be seen from ketamine, uh, respiratory depression, just like the other medications, and uh, reports of inter increased intracranial pressure can also be seen from ketamine. A couple of unique side effects that ketamine carries with it um, are hypersalivation and nystagmus. So those emergence reactions that we talked about can actually be seen in up to about 15% of patients. Um, the severity can really vary. 
and they are much less commonly seen in uh, children and elderly, um, but they are frequently, uh, also less frequently get seen when given by uh, an intramuscular route of administration. Um, really to help to decrease that uh, emergence reaction, we would really want to decrease the, the verbal, tactile, and visual stimulation in the recovery period, and consideration of pretreatment with benzodiazepines can help to lessen or prevent those emergence reactions. Uh, methohexatol is used fairly infrequently for procedural sedation. It's a class four controlled substance um, that is a barbiturate. It has the properties of amnestic sedative and anxiolasis, and again, works on that GABA receptor, but it also works as a glutamate antagonist. Uh, methohexatol, again, is a lipid emulsion, very short acting, um, short onset of action of about three to eight minutes, um, and it really lasts for very, very little uh, periods of time. We give that in doses of 0.5 to 1 milligrams per kilogram via IV push, and similar to all of the other sedative medications, it carries with the um, side effects of respiratory depression and hypotension. Um, and the last medication that I'll talk about is dexmedetomidine. Dexmedetomidine uh, works a little differently than some of the other meds. Um, it's actually an agonist of the alpha-2 adrenergic system and works via some negative feedback loops. Um, currently in our institution, dexmedetomidine is not approved for procedural sedation in patients who are not mechanically ventilated unless an anesthesiologist is present. Um, dosing again is 0.5 to 1 mics per kilo um, given over a period of time. And side effects from the dexmedetomidine really uh, are hypotension and bradycardia and respiratory depression. The bradycardia from dexmedetomidine can be a little bit uh, more pronounced than some of the other medications as well. So when we're talking about dosing these medications, we have to remember that the combination of additives can have added, additive benefits, but they can also have additive risks. Um, there are set doses that are used um, really for that initial dosing, but from a redosing standpoint, um, nothing is set in stone. We have to pay attention to our patients and how they're responding to the medications. Um, considerations um, for patient factors, we need to look at their age, um, patients' weight, very small, very large patients may react differently to the medications. Um, and we have to consider their past medical history and their past medication history. Um, what's their current organ function? Most of these medications are metabolized by the liver and excreted by the kidneys, which can cause some prolonged sedation. Uh, we can also look back to see if the patients have required a lot of sedative uh, in the past during other procedures. That can be a great indicator of kind of what kind of doses we're going to end up with these people. And uh, Dr. Hurd talked a lot about the depths of sedation. So you know, what's our goal with the depth of sedation during the procedure? that can really help drive the amount of drug that we're giving. We have to titrate to effect. Giving small incremental doses is really key. Uh, we have to allow time to lapse between uh, redosing the medication. So we can't you know, give a drug and expect the onset um, to be very quick if the drug just doesn't work that way pharmacokinetically. And really allowing more time uh, for doses between uh, non-intravenous routes is gonna be key as well. Um, just a couple of policy things to point out with the uh, procedural sedation. Anytime a medication is being drawn up and being given via the intravenous route, we have to pay attention to sterile technique when preparing, um, being careful not to introduce any type of bacteria into the patient's bloodstream. 
From a labeling perspective, if the medication is given immediately after being drawn up, it's not required to be labeled, but we do require verbal and uh, verbal verification of the medication, the dose and the concentration by both the person preparing the medication and the person administering. If the medication is drawn up and not being given immediately, then it is required to be labeled with that medication name, the dose, the concentration, and the expiration date and time. Great, that was so helpful. Thank you so much, Kristen. Um, now, you know, you mentioned about the additive benefits of putting medications together. Uh, at what level of sedation are we starting to use combination meds and what are some common combinations that you use? I think that it really depends on what procedure is being done. Um, you know, if we're going to be giving uh, someone mild sedation and they're very anxious, um, you know, we may then think about using a combination of two drugs that cause um, or help with uh, the anxiety and also provide some pain control. So I think that those, uh, that question, you really have to think about uh, what's the goal with that specific patient. Um, I would say the most common combination of medications that we use are the opioids and benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. um, with that combination, we can achieve anxiolysis, uh, and we can also have the analgesic um, effects from the uh, opioid medication as well. Okay, perfect. Now, um, it seems like all the medications you mentioned are by the intravenous route. Are there other routes of administration that might be used during procedural sedation? Yes, definitely. If the patient doesn't have uh, intravenous access, then mm -hmm. we could think about using different routes of administration. Um, or if they're in a, a setting like a dental office, then the oral route of uh, administration would be commonly used. Mm -hmm. um, although intravenous is definitely the most common, um, we can certainly provide procedural sedation by other routes of administration. Okay, are any of the reversal agents available by non-IV routes? Unfortunately, not currently. Oh, but um, naloxone. Oh yes, naloxone, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, uh -huh. that is. Um, naloxone is uh, available via the intravenous route, we can give that uh, through the IM route, and then there are nasal preparations of that um, that are very commonly used um, and distributed. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Now, the newer medication you mentioned, the Remimazolam, uh, that seems really great with the fast onset of action, even faster than uh, midazolam. Is that medication readily available at this point? It is readily available on the market. Um, however, many institutions have uh, evaluated it. it. It is a bit cost prohibitive right now. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really excited to see where the future takes us with Remimazolam because um, you know, it, it's pretty interesting to see the recovery time for patients instead of them, you know, going home for a few hours and kind of having some uh, mental disturbance, uh, you know, into the mm -hmm. day. They can walk out of the procedural area or the operating room um, with a, a much clearer mind. So mm -hmm. I think from a safety perspective, it's something that we're going to have to uh, really look at. Okay, perfect. Now, Jarrett, um, what are some of the key skills that procedures really ought to have in case a patient does fall into a deeper level of sedation? Absolutely. So the first key skill is to have plan and obviously somebody that is monitoring the patient well and assessing if that patient is falling into a deeper level of sedation or loss of consciousness. At that point, there should always be a low threshold to call for assistance, you know, additional personnel, even if that includes a qualified anesthesia provider. And then mm -hmm. basic either BLS or and or ACLS training and basic airway management. Again, being mm -hmm. able to get the patient in the proper position if we need to... Uh, put the patient with supplemental oxygenation, and most importantly, decrease the level of sedation. Thanks, Jarrett. Now we're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Jarrett. Thanks again for having me. So my final key point, when we're bringing patients in to provide sedation, patient safety should always be first and foremost. 
With that in mind, it's never wrong to have a great plan in place. Make sure that you've done a thorough assessment of the patient before providing sedation. That includes a review of systems and an H&P. Make sure that you have the qualified personnel, those that are BLS and or ACLS trained. And if that includes up to ACLS providers, Please have a low threshold for calling for additional support if a patient is slipping into a deeper level of sedation or unconsciousness. And then irrespective of the pavilion where the sedation is being provided, whether that is in the office or the procedural suite or in the operating room, make sure that all of the appropriate equipment is there, including the medications and also anything needed to potentially rescue an airway. And that would include supplemental oxygen, the airways as mentioned, and at a minimum bag mask ventilation. And Kristen? When selecting medications for procedural sedation, um, I think the key is really to start with the dose and allow for that medication to uh, onset. We really need to make sure that we are allowing for the medication to kick in prior to giving redoses. Uh, redoses too close together can really be uh, the reason that we get into some adverse effects and have safety issues with our patients. Thank you both for coming on the program, and thank you, audience, for joining us today. If you are using today's webcast for sedation credentialing, please log on to our website at ccme.osu.edu to take the post-test. You can also receive CME credit and ABIM MOC points for watching today's program. Join us again next week with my guests, Dr. Aaron McConnell, Aaron Freeberg, and Andrew Seamus to talk about post-acute sequelae of COVID-19. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell till next time.